Hey, Sound and Groove Podcast is back for another theme, a two-parter, like I typically do. It's the second theme of this year, 2018, and the third podcast episode of it. And what we're going with this time around, uh, for the particular uniting theme of all these great tunes you're going to hear, is something I like to call Gratuitous Sax and Senseless Violins. Uh, it's actually songs about, no, that's not really the name I'm going for. I, I stole that a bit from an album by Sparks. No, no, I'm just going to go with uh, one called Mother of Violence, Songs of the Dangerous Imagery. And uh, I named it after a tune that's going to come first. I keep saying tune, but whatever you want to call it, composition. And uh, so these are songs that have that kind of imagery in the title or in the particular topic of discussion in the song, you know, songs of uh, warfare and violence, murder, you know, this is evil, dark stuff we're talking about here, but I don't want to bring you down too much with it. I'm just sort of laying out the map of what what you can expect. And the first track, the one that I uh, said it was named after, is called Mother of Violence. And uh, it's by Peter Gabriel, who I've played a few tunes from before, whether with Genesis or on his own. Another one of those artists that for some reason I got into when I was really young, and there was some cassettes lying around. It's very abstract art rock kind of music that's at times a little, you know, some of his later stuff after this, his uh, third and fourth albums were a little disturbing sounding for an eight and nine-year-old to listen to, but I was at the time, I don't know why. Before I discovered any 60s music, I heard Peter Gabriel stuff, which is you know, it's a bit, it's a bit out there. Um, at times, can be a bit uh, disturbing sounding, but in the end, he has a good sense of humor about it, and he really explored world music. So it was a pretty good uh, introduction of that thing too. I've always had an affinity for those, going back to Graceland, which I apparently loved when I was like, you know, one. But we'll get to you know maybe an episode that has more world music rhythms and stuff like that. Yeah, stay tuned. There's more year to come and more themes to uh, sink our teeth into here on the Santa Groove Podcast. Anyway, uh, so let's get to that song, right? It's Peter Gabriel's second album that came off of. Now, his first four albums were all called that until his record company started to get annoyed and, you know, said, okay, you got to come up with names. So he came up with flippin', you know, short titles like Us and Up and So. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, the fourth one, I think, is American label for a title titled Security. But he wanted each album to be like a magazine edition with the same logo, Peter Gabriel. They were all self-titled ones, too. But this was the second of those, so it came out in 1978, produced by Robert Fripp, he of the uh, uh, highly uh, regarded prog rock band King Crimson. Anyway, it's more of a sedated number with piano and acoustic guitar, so let's take a listen. Mother of Violence in the Santa Group Podcast. To believe in anything, you know 
Alright, there was Mother of Violence from Peter Gabriel on this episode one of a particular podcast theme, also called Mother of Violence, here on the Sound of Groove podcast, which can be found at musicofevansmind.blogspot.com, as well as notthepublicbroadcaster.com in the Not the Public podcast section when you go to that website. I'll have a link in there and this whole, you know, if you check out the page and everything, you'll see on either website what I'm talking about. <laughs> but anyhow... That's just for you to discover uh, in the reading portion, and this is what you're listening to instead to get a little sense of what uh, what's on here. You'll see the track listings. You can even skip over what I'm saying right now with all the talking, go right to the songs if that's what you're interested in most. But I'm giving you a bit of a lowdown too, aren't I? You know, narrating a bit what we're going through here. So that was a Peter Gabriel's song we just heard. A uh, different sound that he was going with early in those uh, days of his solo career. You know, a little more conventional rock setup with guitars, piano, and drums, and all that. Hell, he did there were even some sax solos on uh, that second album. And then he went a completely different way with computerized synthesizers and gated drums and all kinds of other studio and technical innovations that made his music so different and dark and oddly textured after this, you know, when the 80s kicked off. But he went in that uh, sort of vein a little bit like maybe further than the uh, than the sound of Genesis went in terms of trying to warp what a you know rock band could sound like which he you know he when he went out of Genesis he actually sounded more conventional on many things a lot of experimental tracks in his first album with like orchestras and synthesizers and sometimes there's blues numbers sometimes there's even a barbershop segment but the second album maybe was a little bit more art rock more prog a little more true to the Genesis sound at times but even then there were still you know some rockers, like I said, with saxophone on it and everything, too. But not much of that afterward on Peter Gabriel's forthcoming albums before he went a little commercial with So in 1986. So let's move on to something uh, a little heavier than that from earlier in the 70s. It's a track, a signature cut from the band Black Sabbath, who many are familiar with as being like forerunners of heavy metal. And this is one of the early tracks that's basically like a, like a blueprint for it, and it's called War Pigs. It's a very anti-war song. It conjures up all kinds of uh, dark imagery and violence and all kinds of stuff and a little bit critical of the whole war machine setup. Now, this came out on their second album, I believe, Paranoid. And Yes, it did, actually, which came out in September 1970. was their only number one album in the UK. Anyway, it kind of launched their career even further than their debut album had. And it was the first cut on it. So let's take a listen to War Pigs, shall we? Here it is, Black Sabbath on the Sound of Groove Podcast. <laughs> Thank you. 
in their masses Just like witches at black masses Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh, larger! Okay, so there was War Pigs, one of the many influential tracks that Black Sabbath churned out, especially in their prime period in the early 70s when they were really on a roll, kind of the forerunners of heavy metal in a many uh, way, and of course disparaged for their music at the time, but then over you know the history of rock it uh, became obvious that they were uh, quite ahead of their time, a little bit ahead of the curve. It was kind of like if Cream had decided to turn up the volume even louder, more distorted and more dreary and depressing and uh, looking at the you know, evils of the world and a lot of people thought they were Satanists and stuff but a lot of the time they were just talking about the satanic things they saw in everyday you know culture the way the world was structured and all that stuff because Geezer Butler was a lyricist and he had that outlook on things and you know Ozzy was the commanding front man 
and Tony Iommi was the inventive guitarist who, you know, basically used the power chord like no one else had and was a hell of a leader, lead player. And Bill Ward had a sort of powerful, you know, like a mixture of John Bonham and Keith Moon back there and then he was always frenetically going uh, pounding away while also creating creating a bit of a strong backbeat at the same time but um, he was never never as talented uh, technically as either but had his own unique style that way so from that rock and roll hall of fame outfit to a much lesser known group the reducers now they were kind of a throwback garage rock group from the 80s that were uh, centered out of Connecticut and uh, you know on the independent scene for a long time they had plenty of tremendous records that didn't get much notoriety and but some of the critics around the country owned in on it and thought they were one of the more um, lesser-known gems out there, and they had so many classic songs. And here's one right here that I believe is from 1985 by them, and it's uh, from an album called Cruise to Nowhere, and it's called Fist Fight at the Beach. So, you know, this is kind of like a 60s thing, like it's like, uh, you know, party at the beach type of thing. However, things go a little awry and a little testosterone and masculinity kick in, and Things go a little wild and dangerous, so it fits in with our violence theme here on this particular podcast episode. So I want to get right to that. Let's take a listen to The Reducers, a northeastern U.S. garage rock band with plenty of uh, diamonds in the rough, as I've said, or nuggets, as they used to call them in the 60s. <laughs> anyway, here it is, uh, Fist Fight at the Beach, right here on the Sound of Groove podcast. Rednecks drinks on the lounge deck Saturday afternoon The sun beats down on a bourgeois town And it's burning up the streets It's like a B-grade film that always ends up in a fist fight at the beach So that was Fist Fight at the Beach, a rollicking, raucous number from uh, a great unknown band from the 80s called The Reducers. 
they were around for many years off and on. I think one of the core members of the group though, passed away from cancer in 2012, which I think shut them down for a bit. But, uh, you know, you can hear right there, it's kind of um, a little bit of like an Eddie Cochran number mixed with a little more of a punk wild style. They really just did draw on 50s and 60s influences for their, their sound. And uh, that sort of fit the punk movement in the late 70s, early 80s. But they were a little more, you know, true to the roots of rock. Uh, I think that would exemplify it right there. So, another track coming up at you here as we keep move, moving along, motoring along here with some great music. At least great music in my view, and hopefully you uh, find it the same way. Uh, it's another violence song, and it's similar to the last one in the, the violence angle, the threat of violence, uh, you know, the threat of gang violence and stuff. It's a track called Four Kicks. It's a little more lighthearted about it. It's more, more swaggering, you know what I mean? Like cocksure guys out there basically saying, you know, you bring your um, your pals and we'll take to the yard like a cockfight, basically. Uh, four kicks who's strutting now they say basically so it's like a little bit of a you know the braggadocious it's kind of like hip-hop people do this all the time with the sort of diss tracks and everything like that and it's like i said it's called four kicks and it's by kings of leon and it's from 2005 album of theirs called aha shake heartbreak which is probably their most pure uh, garage grungy album you'll hear i mean they're a lot more untamed some would argue better on this album their second one that they released then on later more cleaned up affairs like they're pretty you know well-known arena rock staple nowadays uh, you know from their southern uh, roots are kind of like a forerunner of a sort of a southern rock revival that came around in the last 15 years 10 to 15 years with like drive-by truckers and stuff and of course there's some country acts that take it to you know a little bit more of, um, of the honky-tonk side of things than these guys do these guys are more of a rock and roll group than anything and uh, before they hit uh, platinum success with you know some more sonically um, uh, kind of moody uh, textures on albums like Only by the Night and Come Around Sundown and Mechanical Bull. They still retain that rock crunch to their sound, but it was not quite as, you know, um, dirty as this, as you'll hear. So anyway, from 2005, here's the Kings of Leon with four kicks on the Sound of Group podcast.
And there's one that deserves to be hailed as a modern garage rock classic. It's Four Kicks from Kings of Leon on the Sound Group podcast. There's a side of them that you might not have been aware of where they originally started out. They were just a little more amateurish sounding, but probably a little more substance to their, uh, to their style, I would say. And uh, that's a perfect example of their roots and where they originally were at until they became a little more, you know, ambitious, I guess you could say. A little more like U2 or Coldplay sounding, although I'd still prefer them to Latter-day U2 and Coldplay when it comes to even their more sonically adventurous, you know, more commercially geared things. I still think they've been, as far as a commercial rock band goes, there aren't many that uh, can do it while retaining a little bit of artistic integrity as well as Kings of Leon have. Although some may argue differently, that's what I see it as. But uh, anyhow, <laughs> let's go on to a not a great, well-known, uh, you know, act in his own right, but a tremendous lead vocalist. It's always found work and always found you know people willing to collaborate, produce him, or even put him in their band. Although he's stuck to the solo thing for the most part. It's a guy named Terry Reed, uh, an Englishman who you know as a teenager was singing in a lot of groups and. Uh, Got a solo career started under the famed British producer Mickey Most in 1968. While he was still only 18, it was recorded, in fact. And the album was called Bang Bang, You're Terry Reed. And there were workouts showing off his vocal prowess. You know, a little bit more kind of R&B, hard edge soul numbers. You know, not unlike the grandiose arrangements of an Arthur Brown type of song. You know, the crazy world of Arthur Brown, that guy. But Terry Reed was even considered briefly for uh, Led Zeppelin. Jimmy Page wanted him, but commitments kept Terry Reed from, you know, from dropping in, dropping them all and joining Led Zeppelin, but he did recommend to go check out a guy from a group called Band of Joy, and his name was Robert Plant, so in a way he led Page to find the lead singer that he'd make history with, of course. They'd go down in the annals of rock, but Terry Reed would stay in the background, even though he had a lot of champions and people supporting him, like Graham Nash, who produced a couple of his albums. But anyway, this one shows off, you know, he could have been modeled in a style of, you know, like a Robert Plant or Steve Marriott, or one of those great frontmen from that area who could really belt out a tune. And uh, he never had a lot of commercial success, but a lot of really good albums. And if you don't know about him, you should check it out. Anyhow, this is actually a cover of a song that was made famous by Sonny and Cher. But I'm going to go with his version because I find it a little more unique. You know, it's not as overplayed and overstated as the other one. So anyway... Here's Bang Bang, My Baby Shot Me Down, from Terry Reed in 1968, right here on the Sound and Groove Podcast. Right.
Okay, there was Bang Bang, My Baby Shot Me Down, Terry Riley's version from 1968. Here in the Santa Group Podcast, continuing on in this episode one of our theme, Mother of Violence, songs of danger, murder, killing, violence, all kinds of other horrific imagery. Yes, it's not quite Halloween-esque, but it's a little bit ghoulish in that sense, in that particular track. It's not the last one you're going to hear. We're going to hear more. This one's called Blue Murder. And uh, it's cut from the Tom Robinson band. Sometimes he just goes by Tom Robinson, but he was still crediting it to the Tom Robinson band on this uh, particular album, which came out in 1979, the second one they did called TRB2. And uh, this one may not have had as many sort of uh, signature cuts on it as that other one, their first, which was called Power in the Darkness, which was a tremendous album. It was a little bit, you know, like, rebel rousing, trying to you know, fight up against the establishment, fight back against the man and everything like that. Tom Robinson. Tom Robinson, that's hard to say. It's a bit of a mouthful. But anyway, uh, he was in a signature artist on the UK punk and new wave rock scenes at the time for uh, not just his uh, powerful music, but also for his, um, at the time, defiant stance being uh, for uh, gay rights, uh, being openly gay. And uh, he even had a signature song, I keep saying signature, I guess you could say his uh, well-known, most well-known tune was called Glad to Be Gay, in fact. This cut here is off of his second album, as I said, and uh, yeah, I mean, you get a good sense of his uh, real uh, rootsy work here, and uh, we're going to get right to it, huh? Here it is, Blue Murder from 1979, the Tom Robinson Band, on the Sound of Group podcast, with yours truly, Evan Dobigan. So here it is. Yes, yeah, it's a bit of a reggae-ish cut, I would say, actually. It's not, not as rocking as his normal stuff. But anyway, that aside, uh, let's take a listen here. Blue Murder on the Sound of Groove podcast, the Tom Robinson Band.
All right, there was a reggae-ish blue murder from the Tom Robinson band from 1979 here in the Sound of Group podcast. That was LP number two from their particular uh, act, and uh, not as strong as Power in the Darkness, like I said earlier, but still, uh, you know, pretty good, cut for cut, I would say. Not quite the startling debut, but yeah, a lot of the time, a lot of uh, bands, a lot of artists have a tough time following up that good debut. It's called a sophomore slump. It exists in a lot of different things, sports included, whatever. But anyhow, moving on from that track to another one here on this particular podcast episode. First in a theme about violence and music called Mother of Violence. This song next is, uh, well, it has a really catching title, a bit of a jarring title. It's, in, it's called Killing an Arab. And now, oh, you would say, what the hell? Who writes a song about something like that? What kind of sick, ridiculous, stupid subject are we uh, delving into here? But no, it's an early single by a band called The Cure band you probably are very aware of in the 80s and 90s, sort of the goth movement, you know. At first they dressed up normally. They were like any old, you know, blue-collar, uh, punk, kind of new wave, post-punk outfit, and then their music came gloomier, more experimental, more keyboards, deep, deeper sounds and bass and texture and all that stuff, really kind of gloomy. And as that happened, they started, you know, teasing their hair more and uh, wearing makeup. So Robert Smith, the leader of The Cure, has pretty much been in it since day one, it's changed his look quite a bit since the late 70s when they started out. But they're all pretty young. I mean, they weren't that far out of high school at the time. And the main uh, attractions of the band were Smith and Lowell Tullhurst, who was the drummer in the early days. Later, he just moved the keyboards. Later, he just moved out of the band altogether after his apathetic sort of approach to things and his drinking became too much to handle for the rest of them. But anyway, at the time, they were young, hungry, fresh, had a kind of a spare sound of just bass, guitar, drums, and all that. And this particular song has sort of an Arab theme. It's got an Arabic kind of um, chord structure to it. And it's based on Albert Camus' novel, The Stranger, in fact. There's a key moment in that book. L'étranger, as it's called in French, uh, the original language of its uh, writing, where uh, the protagonist of the book shoots an Arab while on a beach. And, of course, you know that's on the, in the lyrical content of the song. It says, staring at the sea, uh, standing on a beach, staring at the sea. Which, of course, a singles collection that came out in 1986, I believe, uh, to mark a decade of The Cure being around as a group, um, was released and it had that title. Uh, it was Staring at the Sea on the CD releases of it and in some countries, but Standing on a Beach was the original title of it in, um, in the UK and a lot of other nations where it was put out. And uh, this is on it, as it was the first single The Cure put out, in fact, in 1979. And uh, there's some controversy over the years, you know, especially with things like wars in the Middle East stuff. So, of course, they had to put disclaimer stickers on the Standing on the Beach release saying, hey, this doesn't promote violence or racism against Arabs. And, of course, when 9-11 and things like that started happening in uh, recent times and wars in the Middle East and everything like that, and, uh, you know, controversy renewed again. I think even in live performances for a little while, the Cure changed the lyrics to kissing an Arab to make it a little less confrontational. Anyway, people misunderstand stuff all the time, right? But let's take a listen to Killing an Arab here on the Sound of Groove podcast. Mama 
Alright, there was Killing an Arab from The Cure way back in 1979 when they were just a bunch of young boys. In fact, their debut album came out that year called Three Imaginary Boys. And uh, it was retitled and repackaged in the U.S. the next year as Boys Don't Cry, named after the you know most well-known hit single off of that album. There weren't a ton, I guess. Boys Don't Cry really was that breakthrough for them. Killing an Arab was their first release single. Didn't really do a darn thing in the U.K. Didn't make much of a dent, but uh, their debut album made more of a splash, and Boys Don't Cry was a well played track that, you know, yeah, as the years went by, became pretty popular. It's a little jaunty, sort of uh, emo-ish kind of uh, punk song. A little bit of a, you know, emotional core. I guess that's why I call it emo. But anyhow, that's not the track we play. We play Killing an Arab, which is a lot more Moorish, a lot more Middle Eastern sounding with those guitar arpeggios and stuff. And it's a little amateurish, but of course it was their first single, so it's not like they were able to just go out and record it in a big fancy studio. Speaking of not fancy, here's a, a group called Dr. Feelgood who were very influential in the old pub rock scene in England in the early to mid-70s when it was kind of a uh, rejection of the slicker values of pop music and the glam rock that was dominating the charts. And these guys sort of were a throwback to what R&B and grungy rock was going on in the mid-60s, the garage bands, but a little more updated, have you know some mo- more modern soul and R&B and funk influences. They weren't immune to current music entirely. And Dr. Feelgood were quite uh, renowned for their <laughs> throwback kind of sound, and they didn't really seem to uh, aspire to be the kind of, you know, pin-up uh, idols and uh, fashionable-looking people that were on TV at the time playing rock music from Bowie to Elton John to Queen. It was not their style. And uh, they had a few pretty good original tracks, but they did a lot of good covers, too. They reinvented a lot of older songs in their own form and they kind of had a grungy guitar sound by uh, Wilco Johnson a very choppy one that he used uh, without us he didn't play with a pick he used his hand to sort of make this funky rhythmic style that uh, was kind of po- pointed the way toward the rigid sort of um, angry snarling kind of uh, guitar sound that you would hear more in punk as uh, the not not so bluesy but very sort of uh, harsh and trebly and uh, a lot of punk guitarists really picked up on that the gang of four is a group I think of comes to mind as one that loved that sound that Wilco Johnson kind of pioneered in Dr. Feelgood before he left the group later in the 70s, I think like 77 or so. And this is from their second album called Malpractice. Haha, <laughs> get the pun. It came out late in 1975, and it's a cover of an old Lieber and Stoller classic. You know, those guys have played a lot of songs from them in recent episodes. It's called Right in Cell Block Number 9, originally done by the Drifters, and here's their version from 1975. So here's Dr. Feelgood on the Sound of Group Podcast. <laughs> Right. 
started in cell block number four and spread like fire across the prison floor. I said, come on, boys, get ready to run. Here comes the warden with a Final track of this particular podcast episode, Riot and Cell Block Number 9 from Dr. Feel Good, cover of a uh, Jerry Lieber Mike Solder classic that the Drifters did. Actually, sorry, I think I said the Drifters originally. It's the Coasters. That's it, the Coasters. Not the uh, stuff that drifts along the ocean, but what you put on top to uh, keep the uh, <laughs> the tables from getting wet. You know, anyhow. Coasting along as opposed to drifting. But anyhow, they Riot and Cell Block Number 9. Tremendous grungy version of that song there, as you can hear in that cover. Uh, one of the many classics from Dr. Feelgood, who were forerunners of the British pub rock scene. And with that, our second episode of 2018, the Sound of Group podcast, is complete. But another one will come out, or sorry, my third one, pardon me. <laughs> but the second part of this theme will come out next. So until then, Evan Dobigan from the Sound of Group podcast saying goodbye.